0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 71 Is Proverbs 8 about Jesus? Part 1 The New Testament. There's a new review of the Trinity's podcast in the iTunes store. It's by a username smajda 79 Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. Subject line says intelligent, witty, and sometimes heady. It's a four-star review, and the body says a great theological podcast on what is held by many as a foundational Christian doctrine. It can be very dry at times and maybe tough for the layman of philosophy. The humor can be very dry, which I love quality guests as well. Thank you for the review. Yeah, it's a professional hazard for a philosophy professor to be dry. I want to bring you content you can't get anywhere else, even if it's difficult sometimes, but I do try to keep it moving and try to explain some things that need explaining. Thank you very much for the feedback. If you enjoy the Trinities podcast, would you consider helping us out with a brief and honest rating and review in the iTunes store, Also, we could use some reviews in the Stitcher page for the Trinity's podcast. Stitcher is apparently the second most popular way for people to access podcasts. Giving ratings and reviews will help more people to find this podcast. Also, I'd like to thank David and Peter for their donations that they gave through PayPal. I never have made money off the Trinity's blog or podcast, and I don't think I ever will, but your donations do help me to defray the expenses of putting this all together. So they're much appreciated. Thank you very much, gentlemen. If you'd like to give a one-time or recurring donation, just look for the orange donate buttons on the right-hand side of any blog post at trinities.org. Finally, I received, sort of late in the game, some very long feedback regarding Episode 70. This is by a gentleman named Eliseo Rodriguez, and he posted a long video response on YouTube. It's an hour and a half. And I've provided the link for that at the blog post for this episode. You can probably also search it on YouTube by searching for Trinity's 70. He spends the first half an hour disagreeing with my interpretation of Colossians 1, which came up in the discussion period after my presentation. I'm not going to get into that. I'll have to let that go for a later episode. But I will respond to a few points he makes about my interpretation of John. Mr. Rodriguez is coming from what I call a subordinationist Unitarian point of view. He calls his own view Arianism and Judaism. I don't know why any follower of Christ would want to adopt either one of those names in opposition to Christian. But anyway, this is the view where Christ pre-exists and creates the world, or is God's instrument in creating the world, and where Jesus is divine, but not divine in the same sense as the Father. This is the kind of Unitarianism you find in a lot of the pre-Nicene church fathers. The first issue he raises concerns my view that the word in John 1 is not supposed to be the pre-human Jesus, but rather something like a divine attribute. Here's a portion of what he says.
2: One problem would be that your word, this in this thing, is being called God. That would be idolatry if it's a thing. We can understand how it would be used for a human or a living thing because it's been used for a living thing before the word God. An angel, obviously, like I said, Moses, kings, magistrates, we understand that when it's used for something alive and obedient to God, the Father, you know, that we understand that it is not, we're not equating it with Adonai, but that we are just saying that it is a mighty or an exalted one or one that's blessed or appointed by God. But when you, when you apply the word God to an inanimate object, An object that is dead, or an object that is a thing that is not, that is idolatry. That is very idolatrous in my opinion.
1: Mr. Rodríguez is surely correct here that the word God can be used for intelligent beings other than the one true God, beings who are subordinate to God, such as angels or various human beings, including Jesus in Hebrews 1. I don't think there's any grounds, though, for saying that there's anything idolatrous about my view. There's nothing about my interpretation of John 1 that involves worshiping idols or giving glory to a creature that belongs only to the one true God. You have to ask why the writer says God was the Word, why he says theos en halagas, at the end of verse 1, God was the Word, or the Word was God. You can take it that he's predicating something of the Word, that is, describing the Word, And so, then you would translate it as, the Word was divine, or some translations say something like, what God was, the Word was. Right, this is God's Word we're talking about. And I think you can take it in the sense of describing, predicating, God's wisdom or plan or purpose. It is divine in the sense that it's a divine attribute. You could say of his omnipotence that it is divine. There's nothing idolatrous about that. Also, despite the lack of the definite article, the, or ha, in Greek, it could be saying that the word is God himself, in a sense. So if we take theos here to not be the description divine, but rather being a name for God, then I agree with the great early modern apologist Nathaniel Lardner, In 1730, he wrote a letter concerning the question whether the Logos supplied the place of a human soul in the person of Jesus Christ. And about John 1.1, he says this, I'm of the opinion that God here, the word God here, is the same God that was mentioned before. St. John useth a gradation. First he says the word was always, before all time. Then he adds, and was with God, And lastly, that he was God himself. What follows confirms this interpretation. Verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who should this be but God the Father, the one living and true God, and author of life and all being? Are there more creators than one? Would any Jew or disciple of Jesus ascribe the creation of the world to any but God? Or his reason or understanding or discretion His wisdom, his power, his word, his spirit, which is the same as God himself? Verse 11, He came to his own, and his own received him not. I pray, whose people were the Jews but God's? His who styled himself Jehovah. He now came in Jesus to his own people, but they received him not. St. John therefore intends the one true God, not any inferior deity. That is, he intends that when he says the word. Lardner's idea, and I agree with this, is that he's referring to God by way of referring to one of his attributes. What the word does is just what God does. His point, as I read him at the end of verse 1, is that the word is not someone else. It's just the word of God. Back to Mr. Rodriguez. Again, in his remarks he makes a lot of the fact that translators say he for the word through this passage. I don't have any problem with that because the word is being personified. He also makes a lot of the statement in verse 14 that the word dwelled among us. Here's part of what he says.
2: This Logos is what dwelled on earth. This Logos is what died on earth. This Logos is the one who preached. This Logos is what preached. This Logos is what died. This Logos is Yeshua.
1: Honestly, it seems that Mr. Rodriguez is having difficulty understanding and taking seriously the interpretation that I'm suggesting. Just because it says dwelled doesn't mean that the word itself has to be alive. The suggestion is that this is a personification of a divine attribute. So when it comes to live with us, it's not literally living because it's an attribute. I'm suggesting that the way it lives among us is by being best expressed in the life of the man Jesus. Notice that this author does not anywhere after chapter 1 describe Jesus as the Logos. So this author doesn't say that the Logos preached in Galilee, this author doesn't say that the Logos died on a cross and was raised. That's just the assumption that the Logos is none other than the pre-human Jesus. Why should we want to question this assumption, which is so popular? Well, in brief, Proverbs 8, which we'll explore in the rest of this episode, after a bit of thinking music. Proverbs is unique in the Bible. It has carefully composed extended passages, and then other parts of it are just dozens of little pearls of wisdom strung together one by one. A major theme of the book of Proverbs is that it is important for us to seek and find wisdom. People seek after so many things—money, status, power, beauty, friends, influence—but one can't live well, and one can't serve God without wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified. She talks to us, starting in chapter 1. She beckons us. She advertises herself. But the high point of her speechifying occurs in chapter 8. She calls out to us from the street corner.
0: Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, At the crossroads, she takes her stand. She cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, you who lack it. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, endowing with wealth those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up At the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped. Before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made earth and fields. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep when He assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress His command. When He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him, like a master worker. And I was daily His delight, rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and delighting in the human race.
1: As you heard from Lady Wisdom, I hope that you clearly understood the most important thing that she said. Did you get it? It is that the pre-human Jesus created the cosmos. What, you didn't hear that part? In the heated Catholic controversies of the 4th century, this text was a major point of dispute between the so-called Arians and their opponents, whom historians now call the pro-Nicene theologians. As in the mid-4th century, they increasingly rallied around the Nicene Creed of 325, which we discussed in episodes 29-31 through of the Trinity's podcast. Both sides took it as obvious that Proverbs 8 is really about Jesus before he became a human, that he already existed and assisted somehow in the creation of the universe. But how did anyone get to thinking that it is obvious that Proverbs 8 is about Jesus, After all, we're all familiar with the literary device of personification, where we treat some non-self as if it were a self. A poet or essayist can make the sun, the moon, and the stars talk, but we don't infer that the author thinks them to be alive. Here, it would seem that wisdom, as possessed by humans, and also as possessed by God, is being personified as a noble lady so that it can sing its own praises in her voice. You need me, she says. Indeed, we do need wisdom. To answer our question, the place to start is clearly in the New Testament. Does any author in the New Testament appeal to this passage as meaning that Christ already existed at the time of creation and that he somehow was used by God in creating? As best I can tell, it's never quoted to this purpose in the New Testament. There are three main passages which have been interpreted as teaching that God created the cosmos through Jesus, and so therefore Jesus must have existed back at that time. The first is Paul in Colossians 1. The second is in the first chapter of Hebrews. And the third is the first chapter of the Gospel of John, which we'll consider in a minute. But first, some have found what they thought was a smoking gun in 1 Corinthians one twenty-four, where Paul says that Christ is, quote, the power of God and the wisdom of God, end quote. Aha, wisdom of God. Proverbs 8 about wisdom. Does this imply that Paul read Proverbs 8 as about Jesus? I don't think so. It makes perfect sense for Paul to call Jesus God's wisdom because of God's wisdom which is so evident in Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry. As Paul says in Colossians 2, quote, I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. End quote. If the amazing treasures of God's wisdom are hidden in Christ, that is, they were formerly hidden but have now been revealed through Christ, it makes perfect sense to refer to Christ himself as the wisdom of God. So that reference is consistent with Paul thinking that Proverbs 8 is about Jesus, but I don't really think it gives us any reason at all to infer that. one famous New Testament passage which I think gestures at and echoes Proverbs 8. This is the famous prologue in the first chapter of the Gospel according to John. I think there is little doubt that the writer there intends his audience to recall the famous words of Lady Wisdom which we just heard. But is the Logos in John 1, the Word, supposed to be the pre-human Jesus? Or is he merely a personification of one or more divine attributes? It's clear, isn't it, that Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8 is just a personification of an attribute. Arguably, this should guide our interpretation of the prologue of the Gospel according to John. For a discussion of John 1 together with Proverbs 8, I'll now pass the baton to Unitarian theologian and Congregationalist pastor George Washington Burnap, who died in 1859, in the third lecture of his 1845 book entitled expository lectures on the principal passages of the scriptures which relate to the doctrine of the Trinity, Burnett discusses the prologue of John at length. First, he lodges several criticisms of the common Trinitarian way of reading John 1. I'm going to skip that portion of this lecture as it's more relevant to a future podcast dealing in depth with John 1. Coming right up, I'll present the latter portion of his lecture in which he presents how he reads John 1 and how this relates to Proverbs 8 and some other passages in ancient wisdom literature. Burnap. I shall go on to paraphrase it. Justice cannot be done to it in a translation, as by the arrangement of the genders in Greek to correspond to the terminations of words instead of the nature of things, word in that language is masculine, though the name of a thing, and has masculine pronouns, adjectives, and articles to agree with it. In the view that I shall give of this passage, I shall make John the interpreter of his own writings, I shall go to the introduction to his first epistle for an explanation of the introduction to his first gospel. The same thing which he there speaks of in the masculine gender, he introduces in his epistle in the neuter and in the feminine. Quote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it. End quote. Literally, her... Quote, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which, quote, literally, she quote, was with the Father and was manifest to us. Now it is evident from this that what is called the Word in the Gospel is called in the Epistle the Word of Life. Then it is called the Life, which in Greek is feminine. But still, she was with God under the same phraseology that the Word was and was manifested to men. Now, it seems impossible to my mind to believe that John meant to say that, quote, eternal life, end quote, was a person with God and was in God. Yet it is just as strongly asserted as that the Word was. The Word of life and eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to the disciples we have no difficulty in interpreting to mean the doctrines and commissions of christ which he received from god and which were the means of conferring eternal life on those who received them why then should we have any hesitation in taking the term word in the same signification which dwelt in christ or to use a more familiar phrase became incarnate in him I take, then, the whole passage to mean this. The word which God spake by Christ, the revelation which he made of himself through him, is nothing new, but is a part of a series of revelations running back to the very beginning of all things. The same almighty power and perfect wisdom which were displayed in the miracles and doctrines of Christ first manifested in the works of physical creation. Quote, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. End quote. The next manifestation was in the creation of the soul of man to which he imparted in a fainter degree than that in which they exist in himself some of his own attributes. Quote, the inspiration of the Almighty hath given him understanding, end quote. Quote, in him, or rather with it, was life, and that life was the light of men, but the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, end quote. The revelation which God made of himself in the material world and in the soul of man was not understood, and the world fell into idolatry. The next revelation that God made of himself was to the Jewish nation, by which he took a particular people and made them his own, brought them into an especial relation to himself. After a long interval, he visited his own people by another revelation, but they did not recognize him in it. He sent John the Baptist to announce the coming of his last and greatest revelation to man, and at length, in Christ himself, that light, which had ever been shining, burst out with greater brilliancy. That life, which had ever been the source of intellectual energy to men, received a more perfect development. That word, which had been sounding in the ears of mortals since the beginning of time, from the works of God, from the heavens above and from the earth beneath, received a more full and articulate enunciation. Such, I believe, to be the meaning of the introduction to John's gospel. I think it satisfies the language at the same time that it is more consistent and probable in itself. It is simple and agrees better with the acknowledged facts of the case. If you interpret the word to mean a person, then you involve yourself in the most inextricable difficulties and perplexities. the interpretation of the impersonality of the word, because it corresponds best with the general representations of the scriptures. Jesus was born and increased in wisdom, which could hardly happen to a being of whose person an omniscient God made a part. He commenced teaching not because any divine power made a constitutional element of him, but because he was visited by the Spirit of God. Quote, he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, end quote which contradicts the idea of the words being a person. It is said of him, quote, that God giveth the spirit unto him not by measure, quote. He says of himself, quote, I, by the spirit of God, cast out devils, quote. If there were such a person in Christ as the word, he was certainly quiescent during his whole ministry. And if the Holy Ghost is a person, he is the person who was in Christ and wrought his miracles. And if the Holy Ghost is not a person and by the Spirit is meant the power of God, then God, without distinction of persons, wrought his miracles, which is perfectly consistent with the Scriptures, but destroys the doctrine of the Trinity. This is precisely in accordance with the representation of Peter. Quote, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God by miracles and signs and wonders, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves do know. End quote. On Another occasion, quote, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him, End quote. From all these passages and many others that I might cite, it seems evident that what is in the introduction of John called the word means nothing more than the divine aid and power, that full measure of wisdom and control over nature, which is, in other places, called, quote, the fullness of the Spirit, quote, and which fitted Jesus for his great office of mediator between God and men. This personification of the attributes of God and representation of them as God himself was not introduced by John in his gospel. It was familiar to the Jews before. It is found in the Old Testament and in the Apocrypha. In the 8th chapter of Proverbs, wisdom is personified just as the word is in the Gospel of John. But by the structure of the Hebrew language, wisdom is feminine, just as wisdom is masculine in Greek. She is represented as a female, going up and down the earth, endeavoring to persuade men to be wise. Quote, Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places, by the way, in the places of the paths, She crieth at the gates, at the entering in of the city, the coming in of the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is unto the sons of men. O ye simple, understand wisdom, and ye fools, be ye of an understanding heart. That no real person is intended appears from the whole structure of the chapter, from the word understanding, which is introduced as synonymous, and especially from these verses, quote, Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. End quote. She then goes on to identify herself with wisdom as it exists in the minds of men, and there seems to be a strong parallelism between the mode of speech here used and one clause of the introduction to John. Quote, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. End quote: "What is wisdom in the one case is word in the other.: quote, "By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth End quote. Afterwards, she identifies herself with wisdom in the mind of God, as she had represented herself as having a personal form, as the monitor of mankind and the counsellor of princes, so she gives herself a personal existence with God from all eternity, because God is the primeval fountain of all wisdom. In the same manner, John represents the word as quote, being with God and being God. End quote. Wisdom proceeds quote, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before the works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no mountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth, while as yet He had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When He prepared the heavens, I was there. End quote. The reader here will observe that wisdom is not represented as being the agent in the creation of the world, but only as being present. In the introduction to the Gospel of John, the divine attributes personified under the term word are represented as the actual agent in bringing all things into existence, or are identified with God himself because in the Old Testament God is represented as having spoken all things into being. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Wisdom proceeds. "...when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the mountains of the deep, when he gave the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men." That all this is a mere personification appears not only from the whole strain of the passage, but from what follows quote, Now, therefore, hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and refuse it not. End quote. book of Ecclesiasticus, a part of the Apocrypha, composed several ages before Christ, but after the closing of the Old Testament, we have a similar personification of wisdom. Quote, wisdom shall praise herself and shall glory in the midst of her people. In the congregation of the Most High she shall open her mouth and triumph before his power. I came out of the mouth of the Most High and covered the earth as a cloud. I dwelt in high places and the throne is my cloudy pillar. I alone compassed the circuit of heaven and walked in the bottom of the deep, in the waves of the sea, and in all the earth, and in every people and nation I got a possession. Quote. This, the reader will perceive, bears a close analogy to the phraseology of John, in which he calls the word, quote, the light which lighteth every man that cometh into the worlds, quote. What succeeds bears an equally strong analogy to that part of John's introduction in which he says that divine illumination, though pervading the minds of the whole human race, was particularly imparted to the Jews. Quote, "He came to his own, and his own received him not." End quote. Wisdom goes on to say, "Lo, the Creator of all things gave me a commandment: He that made me caused my tabernacle to rest and said, "Let thy dwelling be in Jacob." and thine inheritance in Israel, End quote. There is likewise in the wisdom of Solomon a personification of the word of God, represented as sent from heaven, a gigantic destroyer of the Egyptians on the night when all their firstborn were destroyed, quote, thine almighty word leaped down from heaven out of thy royal throne as a fierce man of war into the midst of a land of destruction and brought thine unfeigned commandment as a sharp sword and standing up filled all things with death, and it touched the heaven, but it stood upon the earth, quote. From these quotations, the reader will perceive that the personification of the attributes of God in the Gospel of John was nothing new, but was already known to the Jews in their own sacred and theological writings. So ends the lecture of Mr. Burnap. Arguably, then, no New Testament writer reads Proverbs 8 as about the ancient exploits of a pre-human Jesus. How and where and why, then, did this reading arise and become so popular, even dominant? Next time on the Trinity's podcast, Proverbs 8 in the 2nd and 3rd Christian Centuries.